Hey friends, welcome to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. This is going to be a really fun episode. I know you're going to enjoy it. We are really privileged to have Suzanne Stabil. She is a Enneagram uh, expert and she is going to uh, kind of tell us all about her story and then uh, take us in the Enneagram a little bit. Suzanne, welcome to Halfway There. Thank you. It's really good to be with you. It's so great to talk to you. Um, you know, I was looking at your profile. It says you're an internationally known Enneagram master, and it's not often you get to have an internationally known Enneagram master have a conversation with you. So thanks for doing it. Sure. You know, I'm not even sure what all that means, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, it means you've done. You spent, not, <laughs> I've done a lot of work, but I'm not too attached. You to spent a lot of time stuff. with it. Yeah, I, I think that's cool. So. Um, I have a ton of questions for you, but why don't you just tell us, first of all, like, who you are, what you're doing, and then we'll go through your story. Okay. Well, I'm, um, I live in Dallas, and we, my husband and I have our own center here, the MICA Center. Uh, we co-founded Life in the Trinity Ministries in the Catholic Church in the mid-1980s when he was still a Catholic priest, and I was uh, a laywoman. And uh, he left the priesthood not to marry me, but to kind of uh, follow what he thought God was leading him to. And he's been a United Methodist pastor for the last 30 years. So here in Dallas, he is uh, head of congregational care at Highland Park United Methodist Church, and he and I are running Life in the Trinity Ministries. And I uh, travel a lot and teach a lot, and I've started writing in the last four years. And... um, I think every day at 67 and 71, we get up and ask the question, what is ours to do today? Mm. And what is the next right thing for us to do? And what would God have us do? And frankly, he's uh, um, a little more open to uh, whatever God would want from us. I sometimes kind of want to slow down and hang out here. We have four children and they all live here. They're all married, and we just had our ninth grandchild. Oh, wow. So there's a lot happening here that I would be content to be with, but I love to teach, and it's still mine to do, so that's what I do. Oh, that's great. Yeah, well, congratulations on that. Uh, that's that's an awesome legacy of, of family. They are uh, all just really incredible human beings. We're very thankful. That's great. Well, okay, so I want to hear a little bit about your story and how you how you came to this point. So did, you're in Dallas now. Did you grow up there? No, I grew up in the panhandle of Texas in a town of 5,000 people. Floyd Ada, Texas is where I'm from. Okay. And uh, I was an adopted child. The doc who delivered me adopted me. And I was there until I was 18. I came to SMU uh, at 18 and... I've been mostly in Dallas since. Okay. And I started out, uh, my life goal was to coach basketball. And I um, coached on the high school level, and then I was the first women's basketball coach at SMU after Title IX. And I coached there for a while, and then I had children, and that changes that whole scene back then. You know, there wasn't much funding, and yeah. Um, I had to do all the jobs and it was too much. And having children was always a goal for me. And um, so I kind of gave myself to that. My first marriage was very complicated and 
um, ended in divorce and I was a single mom. Um, along the way, I, um, taught theology in a Catholic high school and that kind of put me in a circle where I, um, did more retreat work. And Mm. I am fortunate in that Joe and I had access to father Richard Rohr as a mentor and a teacher. And, uh, he taught me the Enneagram. And I've been teaching for 25 years. Wow. Yeah, that's that's amazing. So I want to I want to know about some specifics there. So did you was your home a Christian home or was it how did you discover Jesus and Christ? I grew up in a Christian home and I um, grew up with highly evolved, very uh, accepting, well-read, kind parents who um, lived their values more than they talked about them, although they were obvious. I grew up in the United Methodist Church, and um, it provided me as a junior high and high school kid with uh, all of the experiences that I could imagine for growing Mm -hmm. in Christian faith. I came to SMU and uh, went to church some, um, explored some. Then I started teaching in a Catholic high school and, um, they had a senior theology program that had a priest and a nun and a lay person, uh, for teaching social issues and social justice. And I got involved teaching in that program from the sociology side, but then it was harder and harder to have, um, clergy. So I, um, went to Perkins school of theology to get enough hours to be able to teach theology. And after that, I kind of was on a journey that went deeper and deeper and deeper for me. Mm. Um, I was a part of the Catholic Church for 10 years. And um, how did you, I'm sorry, what did you find attractive about that? I was just fixing to say, it's one of the best uh, experiences probably of my spiritual journey because of liturgy and history. You know, in the United Methodist Church, method is really uh, kind of what Methodists are about. There is a a way to manage your life with some kind of order so that you live a good life. And in the Catholic Church, there is um, an understanding that it's more than you. It's about more than you. You have a history that... Mm. Um, you can own and claim without losing any sense of present time and what God is calling you to, and an appreciation for mystery that I think is really lacking, frankly, now in every denomination. But yes. I, I got that there. I, I have a real um, affinity for the lives of the saints, but I actually think that's because I'm a two on the Enneagram and people's stories are just what what give me uh, enough to identify with that they change my life. Yeah. Interesting. I find the same thing. So I grew up in an evangelical church, evangelical free, so similar. And, you know, it wasn't until, you know, I was even in seminary that I started to uh, explore some of the saints and, you know, find Ignatius of Loyola and, Some of those people that really taught me to imagine and kind of to think 
um, about God a lot differently and pray through scripture. You know, even I always say evangelicals, we have this, we say, read your Bible and pray, but nobody ever teaches you how. And so I say the exact same thing. I'd be happy to, but I, I I need something new. right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was, it was good for me to go kind of outside of my tradition to learn some new practices and things. So it sounds like you found something similar in the Roman Catholic church. I did. Yeah. I did. Inter- very thankful for it. And I, um, I find liturgy to be very sustaining and I'm opposed to a closed communion table. So mm. I never, um, there, you know, there are parts of everything that fit the way, you know, God and parts that don't. Oh yeah. And, um, I think the table's open to everybody, period. Yeah, interesting. I one time saw um, um, Archbishop Chaput used to Uh be here in Denver. And in seminary, he came and spoke to our chapel, which was a real privilege, right? You don't get to see a guy of his caliber all the time. So he came, and uh, there was a time for questions. And one of our professors, who was very open as well, he was one of our spiritual formation guys, Bruce Demarest. I don't know if you know him, but he, um, he came... Like he just was gonna ask his question. He was like, "Oh, hand in the air!" Like I want to ask this, and he asked about communion. And Chapu had to say, "Yeah, you know, we would prefer that if you're not in the church, you don't take it." But yeah. you know, what we have a lot more in common than we don't. It was an interesting experience. But, yeah, I'm. I'm not sure. When my husband was a priest, he Joe went to seminary at 14, and wow. he was with the Vincentian Fathers for 26 years, and uh, he always gave communion to everybody. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like you have to you have an ID card or anything. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's exactly. good. Well, cool. Well, interesting. I just find that fascinating because um, this idea of kind of going outside of your tradition and to learn more, I think, is really helpful. And I've kind of embraced that recently. So thanks for that. I think so too. And I think a lot of judgment about other faith beliefs and other traditions is uninformed judgment. Mm. It's about uh, bad information. Yeah. Well, I think particularly within, you know, the Christian church at large, yeah. capital C church, right? There's a, you know, there's room to say, okay, we may not agree on everything theologically, but tell me why you do this practice and maybe I can yeah. learn something from it. So Yeah. Wesley uh, said, um, believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and beyond that, hold any opinion you wish. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, that's yeah, good. Yeah, it's not bad. I like that. Okay. Well, so you were, so you, you went there, did you have like a, a personal conversion experience or was it just always, this is who you are? I, I so wish that I could say that I had one experience yeah. and that did it. I've always wondered how Paul managed all that he managed after this one really big right. significant experience. God has blessed me with, um, experiences at different stages in my life. So um, I, uh, this little town that I grew up in had one of everything in terms of churches. And in those days, all Protestant churches had revivals. Oh, wow. And there was so little to do in the town that I grew up in that everybody went to every church's revival. So I got exposed at a young age to all different kinds of practices associated with faith belief. And um, I, I think that we often think transformative experience or experiences of God that really get our attention are um, either ethereal or positive. Mm-hmm. I've learned an awful lot through the 
experiences of my life where I know God was present, but the experience was very challenging. Yeah. Right. Go ahead. Right. Yeah. Well, so to learn that and experience God with me in uh, maybe the mistakes that I made or the things that I misunderstood and misread or places where I discerned wrong, God's presence to me in that space has proven to be as important as some of the spiritual experiences I've had, aware that God was acting in my life in a way that was not ordinary. Right. Yeah, it's it's in those challenging times, too, that we find how faithful God is. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So um, then, a- after my divorce, um, I, I, uh, I had a significant spiritual experience where I knew that I still was God's child and that I was beloved and that God was going to use me. And um, I'm living into that. Wow. Do you want to share that or is that something? Uh, It's uh, significant enough that I don't want to. Okay. That's all right. uh, It's not ordinary. And I, um, I'll tell you sometime over coffee. Oh, I'd love that. That would be great. Okay. All right. You and I'll do that. That's perfect. How did you do discover the Enneagram then? You said Richard Ward taught you, but. Yeah, Joe and I, uh, Richard and Joe are about the same age and um, they had the same formation experience, Richard with the Franciscans and Joe with the Vincentians. And uh, honestly, Joe just called him one day and said, this is who I am. And my wife and I have read your work and if we were to come to Albuquerque, would you meet with us? And he said, yes. And um, once we got to know him a little bit, I had been reading everything I could get my hands on about the Enneagram. Some of it was good and some wasn't. And he said, you know, I think this might be yours to do. Mm. And he suggested that I study the Enneagram for five years without teaching it or talking about it. And I'm a chatty gal. Yeah. So that was a real challenge for me, but it felt right. So that's what I did. Wow. And because I did that, I uh, was exposed to all that it can be instead of this little stream that I think minimizes greatly the capacity it has as spiritual wisdom and as a spiritually safe, transformative practice. Yeah. So, um, I started teaching with a little group and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I, I I have to say that it was never my intention to be where I am doing what I am. Evidently it was God's cause every step led me here. Mm. Sometimes he does that, right? He picks out, yeah. he picks somebody so, and he says, this is your, is your calling. Yeah. And, you know, I I teach differently than most people um, because I'm a two, I think. And so I teach with storytelling and um, relationships are very important to me. And I, I think it's added a dimension to the body of Enneagram work that's available. That's a good addition. It's certainly not the end all be all. And I, I don't think the Enneagram is either. I, I think the Enneagram, you, you know, when you have a new book come out, a lot of people want to interview you. And, yeah. Uh, one of the questions that everybody asks me is, what's dangerous about the Enneagram? <laughs> and my answer is, uh, there is one danger. And that's that you take it to be more than it is. Right. 
it's just one spiritual wisdom tool. If you if you couple it with prayer and scripture and a contemplative practice and kind of a rotating spiritual practice that you commit yourself to out of all the traditional practices that are possible, then I think it really has some value. Yeah, I think that's great. So the that was one, you know, it's one of the questions, right? Especially for an evangelical audience to go, okay, right. if this is not the Bible, then how do I understand this whole thing? Is this something I can really trust? And I, I love that. It's just one tool. Just take it for what it's worth. And right. it doesn't have to become everything about how you understand yourself, but it might be helpful to understand yourself. I do think it's incredibly helpful to understand yourself. And Joe and I, uh, on and off, uh, have an Institute for Spiritual Formation where we have people come for two years, four weekends each year. And uh, we teach a lot of things. He teaches spiritual practices and I teach the Enneagram and um, I do some work with the fruits of the spirit. And, and in that reality, one of the things that I'm aware of is when people begin to commit themselves to a, a deeper spiritual journey, the first two things that happen for most folks are they run into the fact that they don't like themselves. Mm. And the Enneagram helps you get over that. And the second thing is struggles with family of origin and with other people. And the Enneagram helps you get over that. And I think those two pieces help us all be uh, more aware of who we are in relationship to God and in relationship to our brothers and sisters. And from that space, then, a spiritual journey is not so frequently interrupted by a lack of self-knowledge and a lack of understanding of difference between me and other people. I want to ask you this question about self-knowledge because it's really, this has become something for me recently that I just think is, uh, is super important. Um, and I don't want to sound too much like I'm deconstructing or getting rid of evangelicalism, but this, I, we, we have these kind of bad ways of thinking about self, right? So right. like you said, we go, okay, well, I'm, you know, it's always, Jesus, others, me, and we put ourselves very low and very little, you know, um, regard for ourselves. So why is it important to understand ourselves and accept ourselves? And then how exactly does the Enneagram help us do that? Um, well, let me start by saying I, I can't fall in love with a God that I'm afraid of. Mm. So if, if there are at least these three worldviews, one being that God created everything and now we're just here to figure it out. One being that God created everything and God is a punishing, rewarding God and we got to know what hoops to jump through. And one being that God created everything, God is present in the ways that God is present and that we are all beloved and we all have a part to play in a much bigger story. And the third is my worldview. And I think uh, the idea that we are um, conditionally loved by God is a contributor to conditionally loving other people. And the wonderful thing about the Enneagram is that the best part of you is also the worst part of you. And so you can't truncate yourself if you use the Enneagram appropriately. You have to wrap your arm around all of who you are and keep marching. And the goal is to be healthier 
to be better in your number than you used to be. So as a two on the Enneagram, the best part of me, the very best part of me is that I'm generous and I'm a giver and I read other people's feelings well and I want to use all that for relationships and for making the world a better place. And the worst part of me is that I'm generous and that I'm a giver because sometimes (laughs) I use that in a manipulative way or in a controlling way, right? Right, yep. And unless you know that the best part of you is the worst part of you, you live life feeling like you've got to get rid of some part of you. So we spend all this time trying to rid ourselves of things when I believe acceptance of the totality of the totality of who we are helps us allow the inadequate parts of ourselves to just fall away. Mm. And trying to make them go away is a different energy that I think only grows false personality. Yes, and that false personality is really problematic, right? Because it is. It, it, you build up this false self and then trying to be in relationship with others as well as God just doesn't work. No, it yeah. doesn't. It like, just doesn't work. I think we've all been there some 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 way, right? Sure. Um, so I should have asked you this earlier, but can you just give us a short definition of the Enneagram and kind of like what what that is? I guess maybe you've been doing that, but I want to just really clearly put sure. that, like give a, give a clear call. Okay. Well, Enneagram literally is Greek for nine points. And so the Enneagram <laughs> is a circle with nine points in it. That's what that means doesn't mean anything else. That's that. funny. And those nine points are um, all representative of nine different ways of seeing the world. So it's about how you see the world and how you take in information from all of the stimulus that's around you. And the idea that we all see the same, that we take in the same information if we're attending the same event or if we're in the same conversation and that we process it the same way is just a bad idea. It's just not true. And what is true is that the Enneagram, unlike uh, Myers-Briggs and other systems that I think are all helpful, the Enneagram is not static. So there's constant movement in the Enneagram. First of all, from healthy to average to unhealthy to Mm -hmm. excess in your number to pathology. And there's also movement in that you have uh, access to behavior of other numbers based on the lines on the Enneagram that really helps you. So um, if, if I have to give you an elevator speech, it's nine ways of seeing and in kind of this unbelievable reality, almost everybody finds themselves in one of those nine ways. I don't believe in taking tests. I don't believe in taking indicators. The Enneagram was an oral tradition for thousands Mm -hmm. of years. I think it still should be, although I've joined the ranks and written a book or two. (laughs) Right. And um, I, I think that this latest buzz about the Enneagram has two sides. And the good side is that people are aware of this ancient spiritual wisdom tool that was used in all faith beliefs, not just Christianity. But also, it's the downside is that um, it's deceptively simple, and people uh, often use it for cocktail talk and uh, identifying other people. And your Enneagram number is determined by your motivation for your behavior and not by your behavior. 
So there is no way of assigning numbers to other people unless you happen to know them very, very well. Yeah, that's really interesting because that does happen a lot, right? So yeah, you can yeah. you can identify yourself, but then the question is, well, what's my wife or you know, what are my kids? And I actually have some questions about being a parent, you know, with that. So maybe sure. we'll get to that here in a minute. Um, okay. but yeah, that is kind of a kind of a an interesting thing. I love the movement, the idea of movement too. So one of my hangups with personality tests, although I love them, is that you know, you can get pigeonholed and then you feel like, oh, it doesn't exactly fit. You're not, you know, you hard to take what is valuable from them. Sure, sure. And uh, within that, you can within the enneagram, you can move around. Yeah, it's it. Once you understand all that movement, all the movement too is based on the three centers of intelligence, which are thinking, feeling, and doing. Mm-hmm. And that's how you find yourself on the enneagram, and that's how you know what you have to do to be healthier using the Enneagram is based on which one of those is dominant. So I, I, I think there's a, an awful lot of wisdom there. And I know that people think that the Enneagram uh, puts you in a box. My answer to that is I just teach you about the box you're already in <laughs> right. and show you a way to expand that a little bit. And um, I, 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 I don't find it to be restrictive. Yeah. Well, so your book, you mentioned that you've written some books. Uh, the one I have is The Path Between Us, which uh-huh. which is about relationships in the Enneagram, which I find very helpful. I was reading, I guess I told you the four, which is what I am to this yeah. this morning. I'm going, oh, that's totally me. That's totally, you know, I, I never feel like I fit in anywhere. Right. You know, even yeah. on my own podcast, right? I'm like, I don't know. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a podcaster, but I really, I, you know, 101 episodes. I'm not a podcaster. Yeah. You're doing all right. Yeah. I'm doing fine. Uh, but, uh, so I, I totally related to that. Um, but then it was interesting that then there's like, you point out how that affects our relationships, right. With, you know, I'm like, Oh, maybe this does affect my relationship with my wife or other people yeah. or, Whatever. So, how can tell us how this helps us kind of understand our our relationships with each other? Um. All right. Well, I'll give you two examples from my family. My husband's a nine on the enneagram, so nines are um, at the top of the enneagram, and they actually um, kind of understand the characteristics of every number better than they understand their own. And nines are peace loving folks who hate conflict. And they're other referenced and uh, kind of laid back. I'm a two and I'm other referenced, but I'm not laid back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am uh, feeling dominant and I am actually thinking repressed. So when I walk in a room, I feel what's happening and then I want to do something about it. Mm-hmm. But my husband walks into a room and sees what needs to be done and then he wants to think about it. Yeah. So if one of our, our children range in age now from age, uh, 30 to 40. And when we walk into a family event, if one of our children isn't doing well and I'm aware of it, then on the way home, I'll say to Joe, what should we do about that? And he says, nothing. (laughs) We shouldn't do anything. We should think about it and see if they want us to help. And, all of those things. So we see similarly, but we're very, very different. And understanding those differences, his orientation to time is the past, and my orientation to time is the present moment. 
Um, our oldest son and our oldest daughter, both orientation to time for them is the future. So there's a lot of conflict that is potentially there. Yeah. When you relate the world to a different orientation to time. And if you know that, there are solutions for that. And if you don't, you just caught, get caught in the same pattern of behavior over and over and over again. Right. So I would say this. The Enneagram gives you language in relationships to tell people things about yourself that you already knew when you learned it from my writing, but you hadn't articulated. Yes. And it changes the expectations that you have for other people because you know that they're not seeing the world the same way you are. Yeah, which allows you to have some grace for them. Sure. So I've done a good bit of work in the recovery community. Uh, and one of the things that's a common conversation there is that expectations are resentments waiting to happen. Yeah. And the Enneagram, uh, once you understand these nine very different perspectives, then your expectations change dramatically. So that's a, a little bit of an example of you know, I normally teach for eight hours when I teach. Sure. Yeah. There's a lot of, lots yeah. of cover there. And friends, you can get the book. Uh, again, it's called The Path Between Us. You can get it at Amazon or wherever books are sold. And there's a really handy study guide as well that actually I'm thinking about doing with some of our, with our small group maybe um, this fall, but it's got lots of great material in there. Um, yeah. If you do it with your small group, let us know. We're kind of um, working with an idea of, knowing what small groups are using the book across mm. the country. Yeah. Nice. So, yeah. Let us know. I will do that. Um, okay. Well, I want to, there's a, so like we said, there's a lot we could cover with the Enneagram. It's, it's very ancient. So there's a lot, um, you know, does it change? Do you find that it's, that it like evolves or grows with modern like psychology or understanding of human people or how does that? I think it uh, has evolved in the last, century. In the 1940s, uh, a guy named Gurdjieff, um, who was very esoteric and um, using all kinds of spiritual practices collectively and together and seeing where the overlap was. And he's kind of the modern grandfather of the Enneagram. And he had two people who studied under him, uh, Claudio Naranjo and Oscar Ichazo, who furthered Enneagram work. And then in the early 1970s, Richard Rohr uh, wrote his book and Rizzo and Hudson wrote their first book and Helen Palmer, her first work. And I think we've been building off of that since. And I, I um, you know, people don't change too much. So <laughs> True. I don't think real wisdom changes that much over time. And I'm leery of new additions to Enneagram talk. Um, I, I'm just leery. I, th I think it needs to be um, uh, at least maintained by some of us as oral tradition. And I think the, the um, grounding information that you get about the Enneagram is very important. So I think there's a lot of material that's good and a lot that isn't. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's, it's interesting because it's not a system that is like copyrighted or anything. Right. So there's yeah. a, so anybody can write about it or That's talk right. about it. And so there's, there is potential for it to kind of have additions to it, but I hear what you're saying that it's not, uh, it's really, there's wisdom in it that we just need to accept. Yeah. 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 Like Some that. things we should just let be. 
Yeah, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I want to go to some questions that uh, we have. So yesterday I put out a call on Facebook and on Twitter. Friends, if you're not following me on Twitter, you can do that. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, and also on um, on Facebook, you can like the Facebook page. Oop, you can like the Facebook page for Halfway There. And when I have the chance to ask a question, um, you can be involved. So I want you to do that. Um, so I have just a, a few of them and we'll just kind of run through them and you can answer them however you want. Okay. Okay. Uh, so this one came from Twitter. Uh, it says, um, being a five mother. So the question really is about how does a five mom parent? Well, but here's the scenario she gave me. Um, uh, I have two, eight and seven elementary age children. That's her typing them. She says, husband is a three, three aggressive numbers and a withdrawn mom of five. I constantly feel drowning, exhausted, not giving enough love, time, and nurturing. How does a five-mom parent well? Oh, that's such a good question. It's very insightful on her part. So um, eights have the most energy of all the numbers on the Enneagram. Nines have the least energy, but fives have a measured amount of energy. And that means that they wake up with a certain amount of energy every day, and every encounter takes energy. So every conversation, every handshake, every exchange, every phone call, everything depletes that energy through the day. And the energy is like manna. You, you can't store up, mm-hmm. right? Um, you, you get your amount for today, and then you get that same amount the next day and the next day and the next day. So fives with uh, children, regardless of their number, have to learn to... Um, make themselves fully available and then withdraw and then make themselves fully available and then withdraw. And the tendency is to try to be partially available all the time, Mm. knowing that you just don't have enough to give. And I think there are a lot of uh, interesting and good ways to practice that. And I, um, I'll give you one example. My mother was a five on the Enneagram. And I'm uh, a two, so I like lots of affection. And um, I wanted a lot of affection from both of my parents. And I can remember now that my mother used to put me on the floor in front of her to do my hair. And I had real long hair, and she would brush my hair and braid it and talk to me about my day and unbraid it and braid it again Mm. and answer all my questions And she was spending time with me, touching me without me touching her. Interesting, yeah. Right? It's just one little example of the things that I think you have to learn to do. And I think fives, aware of their limited amount of energy, have to really work on what their priorities are and make sure that they have the energy for those priorities. Yeah, and start at the top so that you can give your – the yeah. energy that you have to the things that are absolutely most important. Exactly. Yeah, that exactly. makes sense. Oh, wow, thank you for that. Okay. Sure. This question is about um, your take on the touch point numbers and how they interact with each other. So here's the example. When an unhealthy two is in relationship with a four, does that highlight the low side of the two in four or draw them to those characteristics? So, uh, say it one more time. Well, so I think the question is like, if you're in a relationship with somebody, does that, uh, 
that you, you're change, connected. Yeah. Does that well. change the way that you're starting to relate with them if they're unhealthy? Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to answer that outside the two, four thing first. Sure. Okay. So the reality is that there, there is a, a lot of history of teaching that when you're in stress, you go to the low side of the number that you go to in stress. And when you're secure, you go to the high side of that number. I think that's limiting and not true. And I think if you do some good Enneagram work, you can learn to go to the high side of your stress number and the high side of your uh, security number. And I believe that you can ultimately, if you do enough work, learn to access some of the behavior from the high side of your stress number without having to fall all the way to your, the bottom of your number and behave badly first. So what happens in Enneagram wisdom is as a two, I would go all, if, if I, I'm unaware of what I just talked about, I would maybe start out my day in a healthy place and then something would happen. I'd be kind of average space and then something else would happen and I'd be kind of below average space. And as it turns out, four is the number that I go to in security. Um, four goes to two in stress. So if a four is having a bad day, which I think is what the question asked, and they come to uh, relate with me as a two, and we share a line on the Enneagram, here's the reality. We both have access to the healthy side of our number mm. or the unhealthy side. We have to name it and know it and be mindful enough of our own behavior to claim that. So my youngest son is a four on the Enneagram. And um, the exchange that we have between a two and a four is this. Um, when fours are really stressed and they take on two behavior, it's super important for them because fours are m mostly focused inward. Twos are mostly focused outward. And so when I'm secure and I take on four space, I can focus inward. So the place where you and I, because you're a four, would meet on the Enneagram is at that place where there's more balance between where we're focused. Both of us focused appropriate, appropriately outwardly and inwardly would make our, our relationship exchange a healthy exchange. Mm -hmm. And no number can be responsible for any behavior choice that you make. You're responsible for that. Right. So, you know, you, there is no, I respond badly when I'm with this number. It's yes. that number is a challenge for me that I need to understand better so I can respond better. Yeah. So what I hear you saying is you, we got to maintain personal responsibility yeah, all, all the, the time. time. Yeah, absolutely. I like that. So okay. Two things I say, never use your Enneagram number as an excuse for your behavior and never blame anybody else for their number or uh, assume that you can judge, critique, mm. you know, they, they see the way they see and as do you. Yeah. There's a lot of healthy acceptance in that, right? Yeah. There's, lot. Okay. I'm going to accept myself. I'm going to accept you, but yeah. not shift blame because blame and shame have a lot of, they, they just do a lot of damage. Yeah. Shame is a terrible thing. Absolutely. Okay. Have you, have you read the soul of shame by Kurt Thompson? No, I Dude. should. Okay. I'll, I'll put that in the show notes and I'll make sure yeah, I pick it up. It's a great book. Excellent. Thank you. So before we leave that, I want to say one more thing. Okay. One of your greatest gifts as a four 
is that you can bear witness to pain without having to fix it. Yeah. I can't bear witness to pain without having to fix it. As a, as a two, you want to make as it a right. Two, yeah. I want to make it right. That's where all of my inclination is, right? Yep. So sometimes you got to raise your level so you're going to engage a little and see if you can help. And I got to back off a little bit and let things be. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that's interesting because doing something like this, one of the questions I often ask is, you know, do you have a, a, a time when you had a dark night of the soul or sure. some, something like that? Because yeah. I, I want to hear those stories and yeah, I can't fix it, but I can, I can hear it and I can share it. And I think it has value for other people. So sure. Sure. That's how I see that coming out. I like that. Um, let me see what other questions we have here. I'm just going to read this. So I agree on confusion regarding deciding which number is the driving force of my personality. I see aspects of number one, four, and seven in me and can't determine which is the primary motivation. So I'm sure you run into that. Um, And can a number have a wing? So that gets into wings. Well, you can answer the first one. How do you tell what your primary motivation is? Okay. Well, if I was going to talk about one, four, and seven, um, I, I would say this, it's likely that that person is a one on the Enneagram who goes to seven in security mm. and four in stress. And the way you would know that is ones have an internal critic that's constant right? and it's never kind. And when things don't pan out like a one plans for them to, They kind of go into the bottom side of four if they're not mindful. And they kind of lament that nobody cares as much as they do and other people don't try as hard as they do and things don't turn out like they would expect them to. And they feel kind of sad. But when ones go to seven, they um, usually, that usually happens, by the way, when they're not home. One, the one move to seven is usually on vacation Mm. or when you're away from all your responsibilities as a one, right? So um, if in any of my work, The Road Back to You or The Path Between Us, if you read the characteristics of one, four, and seven, then you'll be able to know which is your primary number. None of those numbers have anything to do with wings, but the wings are the number on either side of you. And the tradition that I come from believes that you have one wing for the first half of life, and then you add the other wing in the second half of life. That's interesting. And my stance on wings is that they give you more balance and they're helpful, uh, but they're not a determinant uh, for what your number is. It's a a behavior thing with wings and not what motivates you. Gotcha. So uh, I think what motivates sevens is they have a strong desire to believe that their needs are going to be taken care of. What motivates fours is that they really long to be known and understood. And what motivates ones is they want to believe that they're good. Mm. Okay. So can a number have a wing that's not next to it? It can only have the ones that are right next to it. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I think it sounds like that's been confusing. And uh, so maybe not figuring that. So getting the book would help is what what you're saying. All right. Well, I, I have the book and I know Carrie who asked the question, so I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll reach okay. out. Good. Um, so here's another question. What do you do when you have a wing that is almost as strong as your dominant type so that you 
can tell which is which. Oh, so that's kind of the same question, right? Sure. Yeah. Right. Okay. So it's all it all has to do with motivation. Yeah. So you start with what motivation. Motivates your behavior. Right. So my uh, oldest daughter is an eight with a big seven wing. And that means that she sees what needs doing and she just wants to go do it. Like she just wants to get it done. If you uh, have an eight with a big nine wing, then you're much more tempered. Hmm. You um, are more uh, reticent to jump in too quickly, I would say. And uh, understanding each number and what motivates that number and, tra- and traditional behavior patterns will help you figure out which is your core number. Motivation is the key, and a lot of people don't know to look for that. Yeah, that's good. Very important. Okay, so maybe this is the same the answer to this next question as well, but how do you do this with your kids? How do you um, you know, know, try to figure out and relate to your kids' numbers? How can you get an accurate number? The question is how soon can you get an accurate number? Is there a way to kind of get their type uh, without like doing a full test, you said you don't believe in those. So I'm guessing you know how to figure that out. Well, <laughs> I actually don't know. You don't? And I'm okay. not, I'm not sure that it's ours to do. So here's what I would say. Um, I've only taught, uh, children in the context of the post adoption community. Okay. And, uh, my daughter does a lot of Enneagram teaching and she and I actually did that together. And we came up with animals for all of the numbers. And um, I would say this. I, I think typing children is problematic. I think every human being has to type themselves. Mm. I think it would be easier to know which stance your children are in. And once you know that, then you would know how to love them well until they're 15 or 16 and ready to figure it out for themselves. I used to say 18, and I used to, uh, for a long time, I wasn't willing to really teach anybody under 18. That's moved to 15 or 16 for me. But I, I think um, we have to be very careful about typing children because it means we would tend to leave out the wrong thing maybe, and there are lots of adults who haven't figured out what number they are, right? So right. Um, just hold it loosely. I'll run through the animals, and I would say this. If you want to figure out what number your children are, read about each of these animals and see if the way they are in the world describes your child, and then hold that very loosely. Oh, that's great. Ones are worker bees. Twos are kangaroos. Threes are eagles. Fours are butterflies. Fives are owls. Sixes are rabbits. Sevens are monkeys. Eights are lions. And nines are turtles. Perfect. Uh, is there some place they can find more about that? Uh, there will be. There will uh, be. Okay. My daughter and her, she's 40 now, she and her husband, and they have children who are 12 and nine, and they're starting to do Enneagram and parenting. Oh, perfect. And if you watch our website, more yes. and more of what they'll, they're creating will be available there. Perfect. That's very helpful. And that's all the questions that my community wanted to make sure that we asked you. So I appreciate that. I appreciate you engaging with all that because it's uh, it's a lot, but I, I think people find it is a little tough to kind of figure out exactly where they are. But like you said, you have to figure it out yourself and, and kind of go through it. So it's helpful. Uh, one thing that helps is if you think about when you were 20, mm. 
you know, when I teach on college campuses, they get their Enneagram number much quicker than otherwise. And frankly, it's because when you're 20, what you think about most and the person you know best is yourself. Yeah. You know that you remember that time when you knew just how you were going to change the world and you knew just (laughs) what you believed in and you knew all of that. And then life teaches you that you were wrong about a lot of that. But (laughs) that that is your way of being in the world. So if you can think back to 20, then you can pretty well figure out what your number is if you want to. I'm convinced that some people don't want to know their number. Yeah. Not many, but some. Yeah, maybe they don't want to engage it or they're skeptical or whatever. Sure, that's okay. Awesome. Wow, well, Suzanne, thank you so much for spending a few minutes with me just sharing a little bit of your story and telling us about the Enneagram and then just answering these questions. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it so much. Thank you for having me. It was so much fun. Mm-hmm.